The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. of hope and forgiveness, it is important to try and shed your fears and embrace the strength of those around you. But sometimes that fear cannot be escaped. Sometimes it hunts you down. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and tourist on the loose, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium examines 1987's thriller sequel, Jaws the Revenge, directed by Joseph Sargent and starring Lorraine Gary, Lance Guest, Mario Van Peebles and Michael Caine. My guest is Chris Alnsby, and you join us preparing a seasonal swordfish barbecue. Hi, Chris. Hello. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, I mean, this time of year we like to look towards the uh, Christmas TV schedules and see what great blockbuster films are on and things that we can cosy down with on a, on a cold winter's day. And with that in mind, what's your favourite Jaws film? <laughs> well, yeah, um, probably the first one, as I can't remember. What, what's the number of the film in Back to the Future, part two? 19. 19. Oh, five out. Yeah, that one always looked quite good. But uh, no, I think the original. Do you have any uh, particular memories of Jaws 2 and Jaws 3D? Ironically... I actually have more memories of watching Jaws 2 on television. I think it must have been one of those films that ITV showed on a fairly regular basis. And I always found the bit at the end, when the kids are on that kind of self-assembled raft of all the wreckage of their boats, that really used to creep me out as a kid. So, ironically, I have stronger memories of Jaws 2, but Jaws was definitely the better film. And have you seen Jaws 3D? Yes. Uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, no one would recommend Jaws 3. It's terrible. Um, it was made in 3D, of course, but it, the particular process that was used meant that the pictures comes out looking very soft and almost like Vaseline's been smeared on the lens in a lot of scenes. And I was amazed that it had been released on Blu-ray because it looks like garbage. Really? Good grief. I know that periodically... UK television would go through 3D phases, and I've got a feeling that they show ITV showed Jaws 3 in a week when the TV Times came with a free pair of red and green glasses stuck to the cover. Um, to inevitable disappointment. Yes, I mean, it's not going to show up the colour of the blood or the water. No. <laughs> but also, Jaws 3 is just a flat-out terrible movie. Mm. Um the first two movies have a certain continuity in terms of the characters. Roy Scheider came back for Jaws 2 as he was under contractual obligation. Um, okay. But with Jaws 3, we have two of the Brody sons, or the two Brody sons, rather, um, now work in SeaWorld and are much older. Um, Mike Brody went from being about 11 to being 25 in 
three or four years and is suddenly played by Dennis Quaid as um, this time a shark gets trapped inside the workings at SeaWorld and starts menacing everyone, including Lewis Gossett Jr., fresh from Mm. his Oscar win and taking an easy paycheck, and Simon McCorkendale, TV's Manimal. (laughs) However, that film had been a major success commercially. So, yeah, I know. It's... (laughs) I mean, mean, in all honesty, people will go and see any old shit with a blockbuster label on it. I mean, Mm. Zack Snyder's built his whole career on this. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, So there was already a a feeling that there would would be a fourth Jaws film. Uh, 1986, um, three years later, had been a very tough year for Universal Pictures. 1985, they'd had two big smash hit releases, Back to the Future and Rocky IV, which was last year's Christmas movie for Cinema Limbo. Mm. So they'd had a very robust year. But then in 1986, they had the uh, twin barrels to the brain of Howard the Duck and Ridley Scott's Legend, both of which had been major commercial disasters. So Sidney Scheinberg, who was head of Universal Pictures at the time, decided that the way to solve this problem is to make another Jaws movie. Um, Jaws The Revenge was commissioned as a script in October 1986. It was released in cinemas nine months later. And it is still believed to be the fastest ever turnaround for a major studio release in the modern era that it went from nothing to being in cinemas in nine months. That's a, I mean, that's an incredible pace, isn't it? It is. Um, Michael de Guzman, who'd previously worked in television and had written uh, two episodes of uh, Steven Spielberg's anthology, Amazing Stories, was commissioned to write the script. And enlisted as director was Joseph Sargent, who'd also started out in television directing Mm. The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and directed the two uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. compilation movies. He'd had a big hit in the mid-70s with The Taking of Pelham 123, one of the classic Mm. uh, New York 70s films. And so he seemed like a very obvious, safe pair of hands for a Jaws picture. Um, It was filmed in January 87, um, several of the well, I say several. Really, only one member of the original cast of the film, cast of the of the first film, came back, yeah. and that was Lorraine Gary. Um, Gary hadn't acted since um, Steven Spielberg's 1941, eight years earlier. <laughs> yeah, she was also Sid Sheinberg's wife. Oh, that's just one of those funny coincidences that you get. It's, yeah, it might have nothing whatsoever to do with her being cast in the original film. <laughs> yes, I'd forgot, of course, yeah. Um, what, what, do we know what position, position Sid Scheinberg was in in 1975 when the first Jaws was being made? I'm fairly sure he was uh, quite high up at, uh, yeah. at Universal at the time. His position was standing behind Steven Spielberg, twisting his arm, yeah. But he, no, it's... Um, sorry, go on. He was um, President and Chief Operating Officer of MCA and Universal Studios from 1973. And mm. he was actually responsible for signing Steven Spielberg to um, Universal Television for a seven-year contract. So presumably, casting his wife in um, Spielberg's first 
major production, not yes. his first not his first cinema film, but his first major film was sort of payback for that. Yeah, it's 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 diplomatic, and I mean to be fair, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with her performance in Jaws. She's it's not the lead role or anything like that. So, you know, I, I suppose it's one of those occasions when yes, it's it's potentially just a little bit of uh, sort of behind the scenes back scratching, but it doesn't doesn't hurt Jaws. No, not at all. But it's interesting you saying about um, Joseph Sargent. Uh, as the director, because given the speed of the film, I wonder if they intentionally went for somebody that had done a lot of television. Because, of course, particularly in the sixties, it was a sausage machine. You were given, you know, you were given a Monday to Friday schedule, and you were expected to shoot ten minutes of footage a day. And if you hadn't finished your episode within sort of five or six days, you just weren't asked back. So I wonder if that was part of the rationale for for getting him on board as director. Well, he'd also made a lot of uh, TV movies as well, so that was mm. kind of priming the pump for a uh, a production that needed to be turned around quickly, yeah. and with and with you know very heavy location filming in a foreign country, effects work, um, mm. complicated logistics because there's lots of crowd scenes, there's lots of stuff on water. Yeah, and in the air. I mean, when you look at the credits of this film, it's got an. In- it's got an incredible behind-the-scenes crew. There's a there's a there's an aerial unit. There's an underwater unit. There's as you say. There's there's I think there's different units as well for sort of depending on whether they're filming in New England or in the Bahamas. So it must have been a logistical nightmare. And yet, and yet they they pretty much did it. I mean, mm. there <laughs> on a on a on a technical level. There is one big problem with the film, which we will get to towards the end. But mm. for the most part, this looks fine. Yeah. I mean, the filming in Martha's Vineyard in the wintertime, so it all looks nice and wintry with snow on the ground. Filming in yeah. the Bahamas around the same time looks looks the same as it does the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, you've got some reasonably good actors. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even some of the, the slow-motion editing stuff looks okay. Yeah. Um, I always found it strange that Jaws: The Revenge is regarded as, you know, an all-time disaster, as you know, one of the worst films ever made, because I remember watching it and thinking, this is fine. Yeah, I think that's it's the not, thing. It, it's not. It's not great, but it's fine. It's the classic example of a film that that is it. Isn't Jaws one of the films that's got a zero rating on Rotten Tomatoes or something? Jaws the Revenge? Yes, yeah. Um, I don't know, probably. Yeah, I think it's I think it's what I think it's a zero rated film. Oh. And as you say, it's not it's not ghastly. I mean it's <laughs> we're back to the same thing, aren't we? Everything's in focus and you can hear what people are saying. Um so it's not There's a story that makes reasonable coherent sense. There's a couple yes. of weird. There's a couple of weird bits that I think are just left over from previous drafts, which we'll go into yeah. as well. But it it you know it narratively makes sense. The acting is fine. The editing's fine. The photography's fine. There's nothing apart from one or two slips that's mm. noticeably bad about it. I think no. the pro- I think the problem is it's the third sequel to Jaws, which people hold up as one of the great masterpieces of popular cinema. Yeah. And if you're measuring kind of, you know, meat and potatoes near TV movie sequel to 
regardless, mm. regardless one of the the all time classics, that's not a fair fight. Yeah, and I wonder as well if that is. I suspect. I wonder as well if it is the fact that I was watching it yesterday, and it's one of those things you can't quite put your finger on. It doesn't look particularly cinematic at times. It does feel like it, you should be watching it for you know as a movie of the week on ABC or something like that. But I couldn't exactly tell you what it is because in terms of the scale of the production, it's incredibly ambitious. It's just at times it doesn't feel like it translates onto TV. Uh, sorry, onto onto film. No, I mean, yeah. The, the, the more I think about it, the more I think you're right that. It's got a 90-minute running time. A TV director, you put this on during Sweeps Week as you know, the latest uh, instalment in the Jaws saga brought to you direct to television with special mm. guest star Michael Caine. Yeah. A, 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 in a period in his career when he would just turn up and do the work and not think about what he was doing too much. Yeah. Although, ironic, oh, I... ironically, of course, his previous film had been Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters, and he was unable to go to the Oscars and accept his award because he was busy filming Jaws the Revenge in the Bahamas. Yes, there's a certain sort of symmetry to that, isn't there? I wonder as well if the slightly daft The Revenge subtitle hurts. The f- if it had just been... <sighs> you can understand why they didn't want to stick four on it, because that just makes it seem tired. But The Revenge also is a bit... Silly, I suppose, is, is is as good a word as any because it's it's not the shark from Jaws. It, yes, uh, so it's not even the shark from Jaws two or Jaws three, is it? It's so just who is who is the revenge against? Exactly, and who and who yeah. is perpetrating it? I mean, it could be Jaws End Game. Uh, yes, because at the time the film was promoted as the final chapter in the Jaws trilogy, because they were pretending that, Jaws, <laughs> that they were pretending Jaws three never happened. I mean, I, I find it kind of odd as well that that they were determinedly pretending that Jaws three didn't happen, and yet, as you say, that had been quite a successful film. It just seems odd that that's the one they would choose to airbrush out of history. Well, the original source of the title is an earlier version of the script. Which explains some of the the odd ticks in the story, namely that originally the shark was actually the means of revenge of a voodoo witch doctor who was uh, using it as a tool of his own vengeance against the Brody family. And and why had the Brody family upset the local witch doctor in Martha's Vineyard? There were. I mean, it is apparently. Well, no, it's in the Bahamas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's some sort of unexplained feud, presumably to do with Mike Brody's work out there. Maybe he upset mm. uh, some local dignitary in some way, and the the witch doctor put a curse on the whole family. Um, but that was cut from an earlier draft of the script because it was stupid. Yes, yeah, uh, you're just but, into is, you're into weekend at Bernie's two territory, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, speaking of sequels with unnecessary voodoo witch doctor, in them. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so, but it was retained in the novel adaptation. Ah, I suppose the novel was just presumably this. These were the days when novelizations had an enormous lead time. So presumably they just went with whatever draft was available at the at that point. Yes, it was actually written by Hank Searles, who'd previously written the novelization of Jaws Two. Ah, 
So you'd think he knew what he was doing. Yeah. He presumably had a lot of good sort of fishy synonyms. So, yeah, they presumably, you know, he was a safe pair of hands. Hmm. So the movie starts in um, Amity Island uh, in the lead-up to Christmas. Amity is, as I think we said earlier, it's a, it's basically a stand-in for Martha's Vineyard, mm. which is the uh, resort town, resort island, rather, in um, New England. And the opening titles are a variation on that from the first film. We're moving underwater and a very John Williams-style score, mm. um, courtesy of Michael Small from the opening titles we then close in on a fish which it turns out is in the middle of being cooked oh that's yes and um, it's the the Brody household in the lead up to Christmas there's a lot of sorry go on I was going to say there is um, the the household gets a call from Thea who is um, Mike's daughter Ellen's granddaughter living in the Bahamas and it then points out, we then see that it's retconning Jaws 3 so that what happened in that movie doesn't count, that Mike went off to the Bahamas and is an oceanographer, and that young Sean, rather than working in SeaWorld, is working as a sheriff's deputy on Amity. And it's also stated that Martin Brody, Roy Scheider's character from the first two films, has since died. Yes. And it's uh, there's a lot of... There's a, the, the script does a lot of sort of heavy lifting and info dumping at this point, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of those kind of knowing lines where characters have to say things like, oh, how's his job in the Bahamas going? And yes, it's, uh, it, gets the, it gets the information across, but it's a, it's a little bit heavy-handed at times. But uh, the weather's very cold and it's snowing, and a call comes in that um, a channel marker's got tangled up with a, a dock piling... So Sean is sent out to try and unravel it as he passes the uh, rehearsals for the town Christmas pageant. And this is this is an incredibly Christmassy film, isn't it? I, think I know. That's, the, that's, that's the why other... I chose it. <laughs> well, yes. Sorry, I don't state it. But almost surprised, given that it's a film about a shark surprisingly quick. I mean, this is a more Christmassy film than Ghostbusters 2, where I think you can virtually get to the end before you realise that that's technically set around Christmas. Um, and yet... When did you say it was released? July. Uh, July. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> because there's nothing that says... Uh, there's nothing that says summer holiday like watching a film set at Christmas. They also had to think practically, though, that because of the mm. condensed schedule, I think, well, we're going to be filming this in the first quarter of the year. If we film any of it in New England, it's going to be winter whether we want it to, to be or not. So we have to write around that. Where can, we, where can we film where there's likely to be sharks in wintertime and, and the weather's going to be okay? The Bahamas. So it, all, it sort of all... Again, it's like television. Everything has to come from what do we have available? Mm. What resources do we have access to? This is the playbook that low-budget filmmakers have to adhere to. What can? What do I have access to that I can then turn into a movie? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, but I'm just, I'm just to the to the point where I'm surprised at how how much the film sets out its its Christmassy theme. And I suppose as well that one of the things that this film constantly 
does all the way through. It's it's struggling for that kind of in the midst of life we are in. What's the phrase? In the midst of life we are in death, or is it the other way around? I, I can't it, actually remember. Well, I think you know six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, but it, so it will. Do, it wants to do the thing like spoilers when um, Sean Brody gets his arm chomped off. You have, you know, you're meant to have all the kind of the, the sound of the choir singing Christmas carols in the background, and I think it's meant to be, as I say, that sense that life goes on amidst the tragedy. Um, and well, it's also the um, yeah, the counterpointing the the two mm. of the horror and the innocence, yeah. like like previous cinema limbo Christmas movie Black Christmas. Well, yes, that's true. Uh, which is uh, you know a recommended viewing item all year round mm, absolutely uh, an element I like as um, Sean passes the, the pageant rehearsals the director has a megaphone and he's I think clearly a bit of a caricature of Sargent himself mm. this... I, did, I <laughs> did actually wonder if that was a Joe Sargent cameo to be honest but I'm guessing it probably wasn't I don't think so no that, there is an overheard line of dialogue Joseph where's your costume Jesus I'm over, I'm over here there's a lot. I mean, Wait, to the. I, the, I mean that, to, that that joke is reused from History of the World Part One. Oh, really? Again, Mel, Mel, Mel Brooks' lawyer reaches for his pen. Yeah. Um, the. There's a lot of um, ADR in this film, isn't there? To the to the point where I noticed it, and I don't normally pick up on stuff like this. When you get the shot of the family outside, and. Sean is walking with them towards his date with Destiny, and he says he's just going to pop into the police station. As the shot begins, a, a couple of ladies come out of a house, and they're having a conversation. Something about, yeah, how come you get to? I said, how come you get to leave early? I said, because my desk is closer to the door. It's clearly ADR'd, but there's no reason for doing it. Except, I guess they had a little bit of space in the scene to put in some additional dialogue. It's just, and when you look at the credits, there's about fifteen or twenty people credited with just kind of like voiceover work. It's really odd. There must have just been a you know a dead slot in the soundtrack, yeah. and they thought, well, clearly, we need we need something that goes there. Mm. So Sean takes his launch into the harbour and starts untangling things, and the shark suddenly rears up out of the water and. As you say, his arm comes off, and he gets dragged under. Yes. Um, cut cut but, to Ellen having to identify his body. It, it's one of the the shark. I mean, it's established right at the beginning. Um, this shark puts a lot of lot of work into killing people as well. Um, it's not. The first death in Jaws is the poor lady that goes swimming. Isn't yes. it? Who um, who surprised everyone with how realistic her shrieking was, and it turned out it was because when she was being shaken backwards and forwards in the shark attack rig, I think she dislocated her shoulder or something. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and obviously, in in comparison, it's not really the same, is it? Because it's poor. Um, who plays Sean Brody? Michael Anderson, Mitchell Anderson, whoever he is. Um, and he's got his arm kind of tucked behind him to simulate that just had your arm lopped off look. And then, does he lean over the boat and the shark drags him in? I think I th- so, try- yes. Yeah, and then he goes under and then he bobs up again. And of course, all this is being done against a backdrop of 
whatever Christmas Carol is the most ironic, presumably Silent Night. Um, mm. And yeah, it takes it just takes people a long time to die in this film when they're attacked by the shark, or in the case of uh, spoilers for the end of the film, in the case of Mario Van Peebles, to not die. Yes, I mean it's one one could try and reconcile it with the original idea of the screenplay that mm. uh, Mario Van Peebles and also Michael Caine survive because they're not members of the Brody family and therefore not subject to the curse. I suppose that's true, and I suppose as well, if you tie it in with the thing that this is supposed to be the witch doctor's revenge, um, he will want everybody to have as as miserable a time as possible. So the shark's just not going to pop up out of the water and chomp somebody's head off. It's it's going to play with them like a cat plays with a with a mouse or something. Exactly. I did do a bit of research as well into um, uh, shark not not migration, but uh, shark habitat, because it's later said that the Bahamas is too cold um, in December, January for great white sharks. Oh, right. But then that, that made me think, well, surely the Bahamas is warmer than Amity is going to be, where there is snow on the ground. Yes, you would think so, I think, yeah. Um, so I checked into um, uh, the the kind of water temperatures that sharks need, and it goes without saying, New England is far too cold for sharks in December. However, <laughs> however, the Bahamas in the first quarter of the year is just cool enough, because normally it would be too hot. Oh. So you would expect to, or, or wouldn't be surprised, to find sharks in the waters around the Bahamas around Christmas New Year time. Hmm. But it's the thing that they don't mention, that there were sharks in the New England. That's the thing that doesn't happen. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's not like this film has a, a cast of people playing marine biologists who could be expected to know this sort of thing. Well, exactly. But yes, um, you're right. There's, they, they do a very stark jump cut, don't they, from uh, poor, old, poor old Sean um, to his mum having to go and identify the body. And yes. he's given, he's given all, uh, she's given all his... She's given his gun! I believe at one point. Hmm. Yeah, when they say these are his belongings and it includes his gun. I I didn't know that that was the that 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 was the police tradition that you you give relatives the gun afterwards. That seems dangerous, but what do I know? It's a very close-knit community on that island. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um Mike and his family also arrive for the funeral. Um his wife Carla and their daughter Thea. And yeah. um, Ellen tells Mike that the shark had waited all this time and it had eventually come for him. And she asks Mike to stay out of the water, to take a, a teaching job of some sort, to to never go in the sea again. And, yeah. she, and she also I mean, in, she also insists that Martin was killed by the shark. And and uh, Michael says, no, Dad, Dad died of a heart attack. But um, yes. no, she insists that it was it was the fear and stress of of the shark that killed him. But again, and and there's this weird. The script presumes it's the same shark from Jaws. I think it's this is. Uh, I I think if you read you know if you just sort of look at the way the characters are, are reacting on screen, everyone is acting as if this is the same shark because nobody ever says no. That you know you remember Dad came back and told us he exploded it. And then he killed the second shark with the 
Electric cable, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's not even the third. It, 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 it's it, it's. But but no, it, it's just this assumption that no, this is definitely the same shark from Jaws, which. If we're if we're living in a world of voodoo witch doctors casting real curses, then it's only a, a tiny step further to reincarnated sharks. That's what I was kind of leaning towards. I mean, and and it's perhaps I don't want to rag on the quality of the special effects too much, but the shark does occasionally look a bit zombie. Is this meant to be a zombie shark? How would you know? Well, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you'd have, that would involve getting close enough up to it to find out, of course. Yeah. I mean, Mike says straight away, oh, don't worry, there aren't any sharks in the Bahamas, it's too warm. Which yeah. isn't true. <laughs> um, to be fair, he hasn't qualified as a marine biologist yet. I assume that he had. Oh, oh no, he's working for his PhD, isn't he, or something? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he's, so he's, he's, he's a qualified marine biologist, but he hasn't got his PhD yet. But presumably his... He didn't study sharks. He was more of a whale guy. Well, uh, well, they seem to be studying snails. Yes, well, yes, there is that. But, um, yeah. you know, encyclopedias are a thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and given that he lives in the Bahamas, you'd think there would be a lot of information there for the benefit of tourists about whether mm. or not there are sharks in the water. And the answer is, most of the year, no. But around, you know, December, January, it's cold enough for sharks. Mm. Well, and there. Sorry, I'm trying now to pull together some half-remembered fragments of James Bond novels, which is the one where Bond and the the current sort of femme fatale of the book are being towed behind a boat that's going to tow them over a coral reef. And uh, that keel hauls. That's live and let die. Live and let die. That's the Bahamas, isn't it? At the end. Uh, no, I think it's Jamaica. Ah, okay. So I'm showing my own, showing my own geographical, geographical ignorance then. Um. The Bahamas is in Thunderball, but most of the other uh, Fleming novels, when they're set in the Caribbean, are, are in Jamaica, because he, yeah. he was an expat who lived there. Yeah, that makes sense. I just remembered that, obviously, the whole line from the, 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 the villain, that, that their backs would be shredded by the coral, and then it would attract the local shark population. I mean, in, when that was used in a film, it was confusing because it, was, it wasn't it was used in the film of Live and Let Die. It was used in For Your Eyes Only, yes. which also has Roger Moore, but that's set in um, the Aegean. Greece, yeah. yeah. And I don't know if they have sharks in the Aegean. I haven't looked it up, I'm afraid. Yeah, don't know. Well, we'll just have to include reading notes with this one afterwards. <laughs> uh, so the whole town... Turn, seems to turn out for mm. Sean's funeral. I mean, he was a, a sheriff's deputy. I mean, presumably he was well-liked. He seemed like a nice lad. And also, um, obviously, uh, Marcus, that's the name of the father, isn't it? Um, no, no, Martin. No, Mar Marcus, 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 is... Marcus Brody is in a different Steven Spielberg film. Oh, OK. It's, that's Daniel Melliott's character in the Indiana Jones films. Oh god, yes, of course it is. Which, which is weird now you think about it, because there are three people with the name M. Brody in different Steven Spielberg movies, and one of them isn't hmm. related to the other two. I wonder if he just—it's it, probably an old school friend, or it's probably a really private in joke that he never talks about. But it's just his dad is so popular that there's a kind of an eight by five glossy still of him in the background in the police station. Yeah. 
and there's not i mean it's entirely possible that that in the wake of um in the wake of sean's death they put up a picture of him as well but it's it's a very odd a moment it, it, it's that that photo is so kind of front and center in the cinematography of that screen that it's a real kind of remember this guy this is jaws i know it says jaws on the front but this is jaws yeah remember that film you like <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah the original intention had been that it would be Roy Scheider in the opening mm. sequence who gets killed, but Scheider didn't even want to do Jaws 2 and had to be strong-armed into it. Really? Now, okay. given the option of being in this film or not, he ran away. Yeah, they couldn't throw enough money at him, yeah. <laughs> they couldn't throw it hard enough to reach him, so quickly, so quickly was he moving. Um... And uh, Michael invites Ellen out to the Bahamas for, for Christmas to to help her recover and, and get her mind off what's happened. Mm. And we cut fairly quickly then to a private plane flying into uh, Nassau. Yes. And, of course, dri- driven by the, the star of the film, Michael Caine. Yes. Michael Caine in rare form, I think. I think he's... Most of the movie... He's he's not even in a Jaws film. He's in a, a you know a light romantic drama mm. about two older people finding love in the Bahamas. Apparently, I mean, the, the, some of the stuff I looked at said that one it, it, on the occasions when he's talked about the film without just globally dismissing it, because of course this is the film that he says, isn't it? It is Jaws, isn't it? Where he says he hasn't seen the film, but he's seen the house it built or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he talked about the fact that he appreciated the fact that the script involved two middle-aged people having a romance. You know, it was it was a kind of a, a proper age age-appropriate romance, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, and I can I can see that you might look at it and go, okay, this th- this film is set in the Bahamas and it's trying to do something a little bit different. Um, he's not. And this is this is going back to what you were saying about there's nothing about this film where you can just point it and go oh my god this is awful. He's fine. He's yeah. I think he's actually really good. Yeah. Because you know, almost all his scenes are like like a proper movie, and he's hmm. he's playing them appropriately and seriously. And his and Hoagie is you know a bit a bit of a, a rogue and a bit of a charmer with a twinkle in his eye, but you know he's also very kind and supportive to Ellen as you know he appreciates that she's going through this huge emotional ordeal. Yeah. And it's a, a nicely balanced character and a nicely balanced performance. I think he's I think he's really good in this. Yeah. No, it's it's a, and it's funny as well. I suppose obviously I've never been in the situation, but if you are an actor that's in a bad film, I suppose the ten, the, the 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 temptation is to kind of just globally dismiss it because that kind of makes you not critic proof exactly but it's that thing of well you can't rubbish me for being in this film because i've beaten you there already um Mm. but i can't quite put my finger on it that line about you know oh well i haven't seen the film but i've seen the house it paid for it's a nice line there's something a little bit disappointing about I'm struggling to find the right words to explain. There's something about the the, the way that, you, that he's kind of sort of throwing away his ability so easily, or I, I don't know. I can't. 
I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I suppose maybe it's just that sense that, you know, it's the disappointment that rather than sort of saying, yeah, that was a bad film, but I wanted to do it because of this, it's just easy to go, yeah, that was a load of rubbish, wasn't it? Yes, he doesn't seem prepared to fight the film's corner. No, and he may not be, you know, for all I know, he's, he's presumably not somebody that bothers to sort of look back particularly. Um, I've no idea if he's ever done any DVD commentaries or anything like that. I would assume, if nothing else, he's probably too expensive to get in for DVD commentaries. I don't know. I mean, I remember that Arnold Schwarzenegger has definitely done a couple. Hmm. Um, although apparently his are terrible, as he just watches the film and occasionally makes some inane comment. Right. Yeah. Steven Spielberg famously doesn't do commentaries. Yeah. And it's a, it, it's it, it's just a shame sometimes because, yeah, I know Woody Allen, not exactly the kind of person that is is widely talked about or admitted he's admired these days. But I would really have liked him to do DVD commentaries for his early funny films. Um, yeah. And it, again, it's a shame that he, he that there's another person that I would have just liked to have he, heard him talking about the process of making films. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's interesting sometimes the people that do and don't, and presumably these days it's probably a contractual obligation. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, although on the other hand, with um, with streaming and um, and uh, online rental, the amount of uh, additional features you're getting on home video releases for new films is diminishing quite quickly. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think any of Christopher Nolan's films have commentaries. Hmm. You see, it's funny because he strikes me as being the, precisely the kind of person that would like to talk about that side of stuff. Yeah, I mean, James Cameron's films, I think, all have commentaries on them, and he you know, will talk at great length about, you know, how great l- lenses and and technical mm. things. But anyway, the, the 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 long and the short of it is there is no DVD commentary on Jaws Four, which is a bit of a shame. Well, there aren't any other extras either, so <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not tremendously surprising. Um, they arrive at the the family house in the Bahamas, and it's it's right on the dock, and it's got a little dock that goes out to a, a tire swing at the end, and little Thea runs out, and she's swinging on it, and Ellen just freaks out straight away. Yes. And I think this is one of the things we kind of haven't talked about. There's a lot of adorable child dialogue in this film. Um, There's a point when they first turn up at Ellen's house. Um, She's chuntering along about the fact that she was on the plane and she had a meal on the plane and she had a ham. And it just goes on and on. And again, I think it's meant to be all, all part of the director's thing of uh, transposing sort of ordinary domestic life against tragedy, but it, it's not very engaged. Yeah, when you're listening to a, a six-year-old kid or however old she's meant to be, sort of going on about it, it's not necessarily very engaging dialogue. Judith Barcy um, was actually, um, I'm just trying to do some basic arithmetic in my head. She was eight, mm. but she's playing five. Okay. Um, and she actually died a year after the film came out, rather tragically. Her oh, father, God. her father was um, um, had had some sort of emotional instability and actually murdered her and her mother, and then shot himself. Oof. 
Yeah, no, I've just uh, I've just called up her IMDb. As you were saying that, I called up her IMDb page and went, oh, that's odd, she's only done four films. <sighs> yeah, well, that's why. Do we know... <sighs> Often with kids in films, they will get an adult in to put on a child's voice and, uh, again, ADR them. Do we? I suppose there's no information, really, about whether she's doing the dialogue, whether there's somebody else. It's... But, uh, it could be ADR, it could be her doing ADR uh, yeah. later on over extra footage. Um, but um, she had some sort of um, physical uh, unusualness that allowed her to play a much younger age. Yeah. Say she, was, she was an eight-year-old playing a five-year-old. Oh, it's and, that, just, and, that, but... and that's quite a big gap. I suppose so, but that's just kind of Hollywood generic casting, isn't it? Because you, you know, everybody plays younger than they were. Yeah, you, know, you look at the cast of Greece is always my go-to example of that, where there's all these kind of haggard thirty-five-year-olds <laughs> pretending, <laughs> pretending to be nineteen. Yes, I believe I believe Stockard Channing, who's playing a seventeen-year-old, was forty. Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize she was. Yeah, but there you go. I did. The, the stupid thing is, the first time I saw Grace, I would have been about ten, nine or ten. I didn't notice anyway, because at that age, everybody that's older than you is just ancient anyway. Oh, I just checked. She was 34. Oh, well, yeah, we're just a... a, that's, a that's, that's not so bad, but that's pretty bad. Yeah. Did you know that... Do you know who the original lead of Grease was when it was staged in London? No. Richard Gere. Oh, okay. Interesting. Did they ever offer him the film? I guess not. Well, no. He was just you know, in the young in yeah. the London cast. If they would have offered it, I presume, to whoever was playing the role on Broadway. Mm. But uh, John Travolta, having done Saturday Night Fever and been a big name on TV, was an obvious yeah. choice at the time. And um, as far as I know, Richard Gere didn't get to do a musical until Chicago in two thousand and one, two, mm. two thousand two. Um. Carla, Michael's wife, is a sculptress, and she's currently working on her new uh, assemblage of sort of weird-looking metal curves and things. And it's called Tourist on the Loose. But Eleanor sees it and immediately freaks out again because it looks like a shark's jaws. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's as as close to looking like a shark as you can get without... Um, without it actually being a shark, it's when I saw it. It's the equivalent of those, you know, that you kind of get modern day horror films about creepy dolls or something. And the creepy doll just looks instantly evil, and is the kind of thing that nobody would have in their house, let alone give to a child. Yeah, uh, and that, that's that's kind of how I feel about this piece of public art. You wouldn't put it on a beach because. The first thing anyone thinks of when they look at it is that looks like the mouth of a shark. <laughs> I mean, it, there was a way of doing it where, you know, it, it could be quite three-dimensional and if and she happens mm. to look at it from a certain angle so that it looks like a shark, but no one else notices because they see it from yeah. other directions. But also, but think... it's it's dangerous to put that near a beach because it's got a lot of pointy bits on it and if someone yeah. falls, they can have a bad accident. Yes, yeah, yeah, it, it is a health and safety nightmare waiting to happen. And it's sprayed red in the end, I think. It, I think when it's actually finally unveiled, it looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it does look terrible. And and the title, it's called Tourist on the Loose. That makes no sense. No. And I don't like it. No. Uh, 
that night, or, or rather later on, Ellen goes swimming in the sea. Suddenly it's fine. And she's attacked mm. by a shark and wakes up because it's a dream. Yes, and this and 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 it, this turns into a film that's suddenly got lots of different people suddenly waking up in the middle of the night because I think it happens to a couple of people, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's quite a nice sequence. Yeah, I was a little bit wrong-footed by it being a dream sequence at first, um, but of course, obviously, the the point that gives it away as the dream sequence is when she's attacked and killed by the shark, and you think, yeah. Well, the fact that it goes from her freaking out at anyone going even near the sea mm. to then her suddenly swimming in the ocean. Yeah, and quite it, a long it, way out. That's yes, it, it feels weird. And it, it, to me, it felt too artificial mm. and just like a an, an obvious trick. Yeah, and I suppose you could have got the same dis- disorienting effect if you'd just had her standing on the edge of the shore and very slowly wading in, except, of course, the, you know... The one thing this film didn't have was was time. Yeah. And the film seems to be trying to portray Ellen as suffering from some kind of PTSD. Mm. How successful do you think it is in in doing that? The problem is she she sounds immediately irrational because she's just. She's just demand. She, she's just demanding that people don't go anywhere near the water. She's freaking out when anyone does go near the water. Um, I don't know. There's a, oddly enough, there's a sequence on the boat when they're on the ferry over from Martha's Vineyard. Um, they're all sort of standing around the ferry, and the theater is mucking around, and the mum plays with her a bit, and then the dad kind of picks her up. And Ellen wanders off to one side and just starts crying. I actually quite like that sequence. It's a nice... It, it felt like a reasonable portrayal of somebody that was grieving. Mm. That, you know, that that you can see something that's just like a lovely little family interaction and it just makes you feel... Something that should make you feel happy has the opposite effect and makes you feel sad. So, fair play to the film at times... You know, jo- Joseph Sargent seems like quite a good actor's director at times. Considering the speed that this film was made, he seems to have been able to give the actors the space to sort of hit proper emotional beats at times. That might be one advantage of working on a project that has a lot of um, logistical complexity, mm. is that while you've got the crew going off, getting robot sharks to work or you know, setting up lighting rigs around the sea... He can then go off and sit with the actors and talk through scenes and come up with business and talk through the the emotional arc of the characters. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but, you know, I don't... And and I thought of one other thing, is that rather than waking up in bed, Ellen should have woken up and she's in the bath. (laughs) Yeah. Or she could have fallen asleep on the beach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yes, um, and and the water is just lapping at her feet. Mm. But there's um, no, I'd, at times she just sounds irrational, and I suppose I don't know how much of this is left over from the earlier version. But yeah, you know, but the idea that you know, her her son has been killed by a shark. Yes, her husband 
basically fought and killed two sharks yes. and then had a heart attack, which she believes is caused by the, the stress and strain. Mm. And now you know, her other son is working as a meteorologist in the ocean. And presumably, uh, from, from her perspective as well, the trauma of going through an excise time loop of having your two sons attacked when they worked at SeaWorld and then oh, suddenly yeah. having, those, having those events unhappen, like you're suddenly a character in <laughs> Doctor Who, that must but, also... But I think it, it should portray her fear as being totally reasonable. Yeah. It's, it's not unjustified. It's a bit... It's a little bit unreasonable, perhaps, but yeah. it's not without justification. I think, I suppose the problem is you're not necessarily watching the film from her perspective. No, she's she's not... The film needs to be in her head, and it's yeah, not. It's always outside. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. I think partly, may, maybe because the film is kind of your view, you're watching her as a character rather than sort of experiencing it a bit more. It, it, yeah, it doesn't quite carry you with... And I think that's where it just tips over... And the, the points when she talks about the shark just, well, effectively just coming for the, like it's a mafioso or something. <laughs> um, it just it just sounds crazy. So the next day, Mike is working on the seabed, um, mm. researching snails, and his research partner is Jake, who is played by Mel, uh, Mario Van Peebles. And the film is a bit vague as to whether or not Jake is a an oceanographic colleague of Mike's or is like a local guy, a sort yeah. of local expert. It's it's not really clear on that score. But he obviously knows what he's doing because he does technical stuff later on, so he's clearly yeah. capable in some way. And um, he argues with Jake and then stops and he apologises and it's it's just the, the stress and the trauma of Sean's death getting to him yeah I mean I, I don't what, this is a here's a loaded question I'm going to ask you what you thought of Mario Van Peebles accent because I'm not entirely sure it worked for me he's trying to put on a sort of a local accent but uh, I don't know it didn't it didn't feel right coming out of his his mouth, as if I if I can phrase it like that. Well, yeah, I mean it's it sounds a little too much like a a Jamaican accent. Mm. So uh, because the film is so vague about yes, who who, who Jake is. Well, no, it's stated firmly they're in the Bahamas, but because we don't know is Jake a local guy, is Jake a colleague from whichever university Mike is working for. We don't really know enough about Jake for it to make sense, so we can only come back to how convincing is his accent. And it sounds okay, I think, yeah. to, to my ears at least. Yeah. Um, I then, you know, have you seen the trailer recently for this this new Irish film, uh, no. Wild Mountain Time? I've got I, that, that. That's a treat I've got for later. I watched the trailer of that and I thought, well, this film clearly is terrible. But some of the accents sound okay. And then I look on Twitter and everyone is tearing into the accents. thought, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's my ear for accents then. Yeah, no, that's kind of my fear. I don't, I don't have an ear for accents. It just doesn't... I don't know. It, it doesn't quite... It doesn't convince, but... You know, I, mean, I wild, suppose... It, wild Mountain Time looks like Begora the movie. <laughs> well, that was... Um, it, who was it that... Um, is it 
Tom Cruise. Oh, Far and Away. Far and Away. Or is there another one? Where's there one where somebody plays an IRA? Oh, The Devil's Own. Brad Pitt. It might be the De- Brad Pitt in The Devil's Own. That's it, yes. I've seen... Um, I, I think it was Leon Herring used to uh, spoof that. They'd just sort of sit there and go, Oh, you need that money. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, poor, poor Brad Pitt. Yes, I mean, he's, had, he's had so many tough breaks, hasn't he? Yes, exactly. Um, they celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Um, I think Mike gets a horrible shirt... Mm. Um, someone else gets a tea set, and and it's it's a nice sequence. You know, the whole the whole Brody clan and Jake and his partner, whose name I oh Louisa, Louisa, is that right? Uh, I think so. Yes. Yes. Um, all they all come together and have a little Christmas tree, and they have a night. You know, a nice family Christmas, and Ellen, much more diplomatically, asks Mike again mm. to change. His job, and she's—it's clear that she's sort of thought about how to approach this. She's much calmer. She's much more diplomatic, and she explains why that you know he's all that she has left now. Hmm. Um, and Mike is, in return, much gentler in his response. That no, he—he—he's going to carry on as he is, and he understands how she feels. But this is his work. And then abruptly, the shark is introduced for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, is that is, is this the bit where you suddenly cut to? Um, sorry, just trying to remember. Jake in the submersible. No, we're not close to that yet. Oh right, okay, yes. No, sorry, I'm thinking, uh, confusing myself now. Um, no, the again, the domestic stuff is better in this film, isn't it? It's it's really weird. If this was just a film about a family going on holiday to the Bahamas after a traumatic accident. I wouldn't watch it, but it wouldn't be... It would be exactly the kind of thing that would crop up on ITVB or whatever that channel is called. <laughs> you know, it would be on about 2.30 when, you know, you're, 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 you're into that kind of post-lunch lull and you just want something fairly... Un- and it would be fine. It would, it would be the kind of thing that you would see on Five Star or mm. um, Sony Movie Drama. Yeah. It's um, just the fact that every now and again people have to be brutally mutilated by sharks. That's the problem. Yeah, the climax of the, the climax of the film would be the unveiling of the horrible statue. <laughs> yes, it would, wouldn't it? Um, and that's uh, and and that's the problem. And yes, and, and presumably the climax of the film would be Michael and Hoagie would reconcile. They'd probably have a fight. Or that, yeah, they might have, that might be a bit too stressful for this type of film, but they would have some kind of disagreement that would end with them reconciling and accepting that Hoagie was, you know, able to marry Ellen with Michael's permission. It would be some, it would be that sort of film. Um, I, I'm actually really excited to watch that film now. <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> I almost forgot that it wasn't real. <laughs> yeah, this, this sounds really good. <laughs> But um, but it's the fact that it's and that's and maybe that's the problem. What's the thing that weakens Jaws for? Oh, it's the shark stuff. That's the yeah the weak the weak link in the film is the reason it exists. Yeah. Um, Ellen's playing with Thea on the beach, and they're building they build a sandcastle, and Ellen is going to 
make a channel f- so that the mm. uh, the moat around it can fill with water. And as she's sort of cutting it into the into the sand, she's re- she walks backwards and without realizing it, realizes that she's walked into the sea. And I really, again, it's a really nice little character moment. Um, it's quite sort of. <sighs> I don't want to say understated exactly because obviously I, I picked up on it, but it, it it's not. Nobody ever kind of comments on it. It's just there, and you're left to interpret it. And again, we're back to the, the, the this film's doing the domestic stuff really well. Hmm. Well, at that moment, she sort of straightens up, and I, it it felt to me like her her Brody sense was tingling. Hmm. Yes, possibly. <laughs> um. And. She snaps out of it when suddenly Michael Caine rows ashore. Yes, <laughs> just a bit. You, I think you can actually see him in the distance earlier in the shot. Yeah, but he he rows ashore in his rowboat. Yes, there's a great and, and what it reminded me. Of, there's um a video. It's one of the John Lennon Yoko Ono videos that was released after Lennon was shot. I couldn't tell you which one it is. It might be Jealous Guy. It includes footage of John Lennon and Yoko Ono rowing down a river. Yoko Ono looks like she's never been in a boat in her life, and she's <laughs> not. In, she's not enjoying the experience. Um, Michael Caine at least gives the impre- impression that he knows what he's doing. Um, you know, and yeah, again, nice little character scene. Uh, a bit more kind of middle-aged romance. Uh, middle-aged romance. Um, Michael Caine's invited for tea inside the castle, I think, because obviously you can't have more than... I'm going to really do... Thea is the Jar Jar Binks of this film, isn't she? You can't go two minutes without her having some dialogue. Yeah, she's the key to all this. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she's the one that upset the witch doctor in in the original draft. Oh, yeah, she didn't invite him for tea in the castle. Yeah, there you go. Mystery solved. Um... Michael and Jake talk about a research grant that's been offered by the Office of Naval Research mm. um, that Jake is keen on taking it, but Mike turns him down. Um, yes, on the grounds that they put bombs on dolphins. Yes. Like um, Day of the Dolphin, about the man who, without realising it, trained a dolphin to assassinate the president. I've, that's, this is one of these films that I've really got to see. I, the, the, tr- the problem I've got is I keep forgetting it exists. Um, but yes, that's definitely on my to-watch list. Well, uh, it's a film with a talking dolphin, and what else has a talking dolphin in it? Sequest DSV, starring Roy Scheider. Oh, well, there you go. The, the circle is complete. <laughs> it's like poetry, it rhymes. Yeah, exactly. Um... Ellen and Hoagie talk, and she says that she's certain that a shark murdered Sean. Mm. And she uses, I think she uses the term murdered specifically. Yeah. Um, oh, and sorry, and it, what that reminds me of, and this is something I forgot, right at the start of the film, obviously when um, Sean is killed, you get two or three close ups of the log. There's a shot of the log floating in the water, then a little bit later there's a shot of the log washed up on the side of the shore, as if it was the log that killed him. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a really odd editing choice. Um, they go for a ride in the plane, and he gets her to take the wheel and to hmm. to fly the plane for a bit. And that and some other things make me think that there is actually a an overall 
theme and an overall arc to the the Jaws trilogy. Oh, which is that it's about facing and overcoming your own fear. Yeah, makes in, sense. In the original film, um, Chief Brody is scared of the water, mm. but he overcomes that fear to defend the town. His trauma from the first film is what he has to overcome in Jaws two, to uh, to achieve that goal again, and it's Ellen's fear and trauma that she has, that she carries, that she has to overcome to, again, um, defend her family from the shark. Yeah. It's this it's ongoing cycle of being put through, put through this uh, painful ordeal and then having to overcome it mm. to go through another ordeal. So it's, it's almost... I mean, I'm probably incorrect but it's almost buddhist of going through these cycles of suffering yes in the hope of, of in the hope of reaching um uh, a, a more yeah the nirvana of jaws the revenge or 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 a relationship with michael kane well yes but i i think it still counts yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, the shark attacks the boat Yes, is this the bit where the, 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 I mentioned earlier the bit where um, Jake He's... is in the underwater submersible? No, he is still oh, to well, the underwater still submersible. Not... But um, as as this is going on, uh, Ellen and Hoagie are going for a walk in town, and they're having the oh, the, the, junk, the junk canoe, which is the I think sort of the New Year's uh, parade or festival, mm. and uh, Michael Caine starts dancing. But as as the boat is attacked, we cut back to Ellen, and her Brody sense goes off again. Yes, it tingles again. Doctor Sharkulon is attacking. <laughs> um, I can't read my own writing here. What have I? No, it's a, I'm I'm sure we've skipped a bit where because uh, this is Michael's in the underwater sub, isn't he? And the sub gets trashed by Jaws, and he flees into the wreck. That's this bit, isn't it? I don't think so. I don't think we've quite got to that yet. Oh uh, no, we, I think we have. Yeah, we've missed. Uh, the only reason I want, the only reason I keep harping on about the bit where Jake's in the sub. No, is... we haven't. No, sorry, we haven't got to that bit yet because they Are haven't we... gone to the casino yet. Uh, okay, fine. In that case, ignore me. I, I, I've just got one particular thing. It's, it's and and frankly, having now given it so much build up, it will be a disappointment when we get there. But that's fine. I'm I'm always w- ready for a bit of bathos. So, uh, yeah, if... and. Uh, if we had commercials, this would be a perfect point for a commercial break. So tune in <laughs> after the break to find out what it is Chris is going to say about uh, Jake and the Submersible. Yeah, which is which has been so on my mind that I've now I've now built it up twice, despite the fact that I know it's not worth any of this build-up. Michael does voice his fear about uh, Ellen being with another man, mm. which I mean, there's a whole barrel of psychological stuff there as well, because in the first film. We see that he would emulate his father. You know, it was where yeah. Martin was sitting and thinking, young Michael would copy him. It's never stated how long before that the dad died, is it? No, it isn't. No, and I suppose I wonder if that doesn't. It's it's odd because um, Michael is more affected by the death of his dad than he is by the death of Shaw. I mean, maybe they just weren't that close, but. 
you know, he's much more, he's got much more of a problem with the idea of his mum hooking up with Hoagie than he does with the fact that she's grieving over the death of her son in a way that he isn't grieving over the death of his brother. Um, and yes, he becomes a bit obsessed with how Hoagie gets his money, I think, doesn't he? Yes, because that's something that's left vague in the film. Uh, later on, there's a line where um, Michael asks him point blank, "What do you do when you're not flying people?" And who he replies, "I deliver laundry." Yeah. In the book, it's revealed that Hoagie actually works as a pilot contractor for the CIA. Yeah, that sounds a bit more um, <laughs> a bit more a pro- more uh, likely as a source of income, doesn't it? Yeah. So the laundry could be laundered money. Yeah, or, yes. And appropriately, they go to a casino for New Year's Eve, where the first time we see Hoagie, he's playing craps and losing. Mm. And it's also Louise's birthday. Yes. Yeah, and um, what's his name? Jake nearly blows the secret of the the shark. Um <sighs> And again, more nice middle-aged role. I, I, I'm, I'm getting a bit concerned about how invested I am in the Ellen Hoagie relationship, but there's more nice little middle-aged romance stuff where they it, go off and have a dance and then the sun cuts in because he still can't quite come to terms with it. And Ellen apologises to him for mm. being so difficult. And so she's she's growing and developing and she's not overcoming her trauma, but certainly learning to live with it, learning to manage it in a healthy way. Yeah, and I think learning as well to recognise when it's verging on the irrational, like asking people that they commit, uh, that they completely quit their current career and things like that, yeah. Mm. Yes, and Jake is working on a transmitter so that they can study shark behaviour uh, because of the perfectly normal behaviour of sharks in the area. Yes. Well, like I say, they're not, you know... They're, con- they're, they're conch guys. They, they know a lot about conches, but less about sharks. So they're startled by this. You know me, Jake. I'm a, I'm a snail man. <laughs> they, are, they argue, though, over what they're going to work on, because they are supposed to be there yes. to study snails, and that's, presumably that's what their grant's supposed to be. And if they don't yeah. re- you know, come back with stuff on snails, they'll get in trouble. So they compromise that they'll, they'll alternate days, effectively. Yes. Uh, I then- mean... I- it's not clear what that they're, they're they're attaching radio transmitters to underwater snails. I think they're studying uh, migration patterns. Yeah, I guess so. About about three feet a day, then presumably. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, uh, they must be really good radio transmitters to be that fine <laughs> in terms of uh, where they are. Um, and that evening, uh, Michael and Carla argue about taking out the rubbish, which I think is it is the most domestic argument it is mm. possible to have in this film yes. set in the Bahamas over Christmas. Yeah, and I think it's somewhere around here that I realised that they'd cast um, Lance Guest for his ability to kind of do that thousand-yard stare off into the distance. Mm. Uh, because he does it a lot. Um, there's a sequence later when he's sitting at the dinner table with uh, being watched by his daughter and when she starts in, uh, when she starts imitating him. He's doing it again, and he does it a lot. There's this kind of, I'm lost in thought and I'm gazing into the middle distance and I'm not really seeing anything that's in front of me. Um, I assume it was just on the, the, the script notes at the casting, was just, if you can do this, you're in. Yes. 
Uh, he, uh, he'd had a few major film roles. He was in Halloween 2 as Jamie Lee Curtis's love interest and had been the lead in The Last Starfighter. Which really wrong-footed me because that's one of those films I watched to death as a kid. Um, but I would never have joined the... I think it's possibly the fact that he's grown a, grown a whole beard in between. Yeah. Um, that's obviously enough to disguise him. Um, but since then, he's worked mainly in TV and he's done mm. some stage work. But he, uh, he and Carla sort of make amends the following day while uh, she works on the horrible statue. Yes. And um, he jokes, Oh, I've always wanted to make love to an angry welder. Yeah, it's uh, fine. That, I, for, that, for all the stuff I've been saying about the domestic stuff being the highlight of the film, that's just... Eh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, then you get the, again, and I know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm starting to sound obsessed by this, but when you get the sequence where they start canoodling in the corner of the workshop and the camera very delicately kind of pans away from them out of the window, again, it's the director going... Yes, once again, in the midst of life, you know, amidst all the significant moments of life, there is trivia going on, and you can just—I just feel it was a theme for him. Mm. Um, and sadly, I've got—I've now got this vague mental picture of Joseph Sargent as an Ed Woods type figure, going, "Yes, this is this is what they'll remember me for." And actually, he was right. Well, this film does contain quite a bit of stock footage as well. Yeah, that's true. Well, if anything, Sergeant is, and I think should be remembered for the taking of Pelham One Two Three, which yeah, is a, a, which is a really great film. It's fantastic, uh, and to be fair, he's also the director of one of the best episodes of Star Trek because he did the Corbomite maneuver, which is oh really uh, yeah yeah, the first episode bang out of the gate, the first episode they filmed, and it's one of the best ones. Yeah, he's a terrific director. Just he's not obviously not given the material here, and. Having said that, as I, as I keep saying, the domestic stuff is great. So he's obviously an actor's director. Mm. He would later uh, work with Michael Caine again on oh. a television film about the end of apartheid, ah. in which Caine played F.W. de Klerk and I think was nominated for an Emmy hmm. with um, Sidney Poitier as Nelson Mandela. It's just a shame they couldn't cast Mario Van Peebles as Nelson Mandela to, cr- to, to recreate the triumvirate. He's slightly too young, I think. Yeah, that's true. Or they could have got his dad, because his dad's in this as well, isn't he? Melvin's yes, in it, Melvin so. Van Peebles, who is uh, one of the founders of the black exploitation genre. Um, so I've always wanted to see, you know, the stars of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure in the same movie. <laughs> I think we've all had that dream. Um, Michael and Jake managed to. Uh, mark the shark with a um, a spear with the um, the radio mm. transmitter attached, while Hoagie and Ellen go on a date. And this is yes, th- this is post alien. Is this pre aliens or post aliens? Post by one year, because it's just the, obviously the gimmick of the heartbeat thing and the b- 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 It's slightly it's 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 muffled a bit. It's muffed a bit in this film because. They never quite pick up on the on the the point that James Cameron had that that noise of the tracker should be the thing that you hear, and it's what gives tension to those sequences. But it's it's yeah it, it it's it's exactly the same idea, isn't it? It's uh... oh yes. Ellen and Carla have a, a a talk, and there's a as a Roy Scheider cameo as yeah. Um, uh, 
we we have a flashback between Michael and Thea, and Thea copying him, mm. and that flashes back to Martin and young Michael, and Michael copying his father. Yeah. Again, as a reminder, hey, remember Jaws? Yes, remember that film you like. And that that it hurts the film to to compare itself to the original. I think because yeah. people watch this think, well, yeah, this isn't as good as Jaws. To be honest, the first half of Jaws is the half that I like. I think when they start going out on the ocean and it turns into Moby Dick, I think it becomes less interesting. It's it's it's, all the stuff on the land that I find really engaging. It's one of those films, I I couldn't tell you the last time that I saw it. Um, It's 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 obviously it's a fantastic film. It literally was one of those films that was it? It was Jaws, wasn't it? That what's what was the tagline? You'll never think it's safe to go back in the water. Something like no, that. No, that was Jaws two. Oh God, really? Yes, of course. It's just when you thought it was safe to go back in the. I was about to say that. You know, my main memory of the film was that it it did make. I remember being a kid, going swimming like obviously in 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 prime shark attack locations like um, Little Hampton and Sea Pauling off the coast of Norfolk, oh, yeah. and being feeling really uncomfortable as the sea floor fell away because obviously Jaws was out there and he was was coming to get me, but I think all that stuff was based on Jaws too. I don't think I saw Jaws as a kid at all. I think I think it was Jaws two that that scarred my psyche. Jaws 2, I have seen cited as the single film responsible for the state of Hollywood now. Really? Because it demonstrated that you could just do the same thing as before, the same same way, just with a different title, and people will pay and see it and you'll get away with it. I suppose that's true, yeah. It's interesting because, of course, Jaws is always the film that people go point to and go, oh, there, there is the birth of the modern blockbuster. But yeah, maybe it was Jaws 2. Jaws created the modern blockbuster. Jaws 2 created the cheap, lazy shortcut. Mm, The kind of the tentpole film, yeah. Yeah, where you can just churn out the same thing over and over again. Hmm. I mean, it's like I said, all the land-based stuff, all the the character uh, drama and the tension stuff, in the first half of Jaws is the interesting part. Yeah. When they go, when, when it you know turns out into a monster hunt film in the the second hour, I I just think it loses momentum. Yeah, as I say, sadly I, I've not seen the film recently enough to to comment. But but yeah, I, I, I I watched all four films again about a year and a half ago. Huh. Um, and I thought, yeah, Jaws, yep, that's pretty good. Jaws two, fine. Jaws yeah. 3 stinks. <laughs> Jaws I 4. Think, mm. I think that at some point it must have been in the 90s the BBC picked up the rights to all four Jaws films. Um because I, my memory is vaguely that they they kind of showed them and this will probably this is probably BBC Genome can make me a liar on this one. But my memory is that you got them one week after another, sort of leading up to the TV premiere with Jaws 4, which I think I watched. It would have been sometime in the early 90s, I suspect. Yes, 1991, I think it was. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I remember it being slotted in on Saturday evenings a couple of times, because it's it's not a long film. It's 90 no. minutes. 
No, again, Prime, you know, it, it could have been designed for TV showings, couldn't it? Yeah. But with PAL speed up and then speeding up the end credits a bit, that's an mm. hour 25. Even when you cut the credits off, it's more like an hour and 20. Yeah. So Michael is now having nightmares as well. Oh, that's right. Yes, and isn't there an implication that, well, obviously now his Brody sense is, his, is tingling as well? Yeah, the um, the curse is getting stronger. Is it is it going to end with Thea having to sing to the shark? Oh, what do you mean, like at the end of Cavern in the Woods? I was, was going to say, like the end of a Gamera movie. That would be fantastic. Um, I mean, that there would, was a... Ho- that is the logical end point of the Jaws movies, persuading the shark not to eat people. Mm, to go against its better nature and to reform, yeah. Because maybe the shark's been through trauma and it has to overcome that. The, the shark, if we assume that Jaws was the dad and Jaws 2 was the mom, it's basically it's just seen its entire family. You know, as far as it's concerned, the Brodies are a bunch of mass murderers. So, so the shark has seen its whole family die the way um, Ellen has. Yeah. In oh, fact, in fact is... here you go. Spurious backstory... This is the mother shark. It's mother versus mother. Oh. So Jaws 2, it was the son. Yeah. And this is the... Ho- so it's the father, the son, and the holy shark. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. See, it's, it, all, it, all, it all comes together, doesn't it? Yeah, these screenwriters, you'd yeah. almost swear it was unintentional, but yeah, it's like all the, there. Like the last part in a trilogy of trilogies. <laughs> More Star Wars jokes coming up, listener. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Mike actually does go down in the mini-sub this time and Jake sings the Jaws theme to him over the radio I did wonder about that yeah it is the Jaws yeah that's fine I, I thought I was I thought I'd misheard but there you go it was very poor taste I think to make that film about that real life incident mm. and then and for bro- Jake and then for Jake to sing the theme from the movie about his family at him yeah no wonder Ellen is so traumatised by all these events you know not only does she have to live through it? But she also sees it become the birth of the modern summer blockbuster. And I bet Sid Sheinberg screwed her out of royalties. I would assume so, yeah. Um, they regain the signal for the shark and it, it smashes into the little mini-sub. Mm. And they have the hide-and-seek sequence inside the, the wrecked ship as Mike tries to get back to the surface without the shark catching him. Hmm. It's it's okay. The shark looks a bit rubbish. It's, I, I, as I say, I haven't watched Jaws recently enough to tell you whether the, whether this one looks better or worse than the original. Worse would be my guess, but uh, the the worst thing about that chase through the the wreck is that it could be more exciting. I think the geography is just not very good. There's one particular bit where. Michael kind of swims up through like a floor hatch, and I just looked at it. Well, the shark, the shark's not getting through there, and then in the next shot, the shark's coming right at him, and it's mm. suddenly it's got behind him or something like that. There's also a moment where an eel suddenly swims out into his face, and I, oh, no, th- th- I was going to say I thought that was later when he's trying to get over his fear. Oh um, yes, sorry, but no, that the, he escapes by turning his. Um, scuba tank into an improvised jetpack, doesn't any jetpacks back up to the surface in a way that I'm pretty sure isn't approved of by any dive organisation. Because no. I think that's how you die. Um, it's ten every 
de- every ten meters depth is one atmosphere. Mm. So I think more than ten meters, you need to not do that. Yeah. Well, certainly he was far enough down to for it to you know scramble his brain by the time he gets up to the surface. Be you know be the way that people thought that. You know, train passengers would be at forty miles per hour. Yes, yeah, exactly. But it was that point as well. It's when they're pulling, um, it's when they're pulling Michael out of the water that I realised that one of the things that this film is kind of missing is you need the kind of the jaw shots of limbs dangling in water and stuff like that. There's no, there's no tension at this uh, at the point when he's being pulled out of the water. Whereas a a different director, you would have had the camera at water level and you would have sort of shown him being pulled very slowly out or something like that. Or the camera uh, under underwater and closing in on him as his as he's slowly exactly. being pulled out, as as his feet just disappear from mm. the water and he's he escapes in the nick of time. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's missing it's missing that kind of just as you thought it was safe to go back in the water sort of turn. And it's a, yes, it's a cheap gimmick, but frankly cheap gimmicks are, are what the shark attack sequence of these films this film needs. Yeah, I mean it, it's a shark attack movie. Hmm. Um. There, there, yeah, he he does confront his fear, and and there's, he gets a, the eel goes into his face. Yes. And that I think is a nod to a scene from the deep, which is the other yeah. underwater Peter Benchley novel adaptation, with starring Robert Shaw. Yes. I just remember what that, that was on. TV at one point, and it was obviously given lots of publicity, and that it's the film, you know, from the person that bought you Jaws comes the deep, and I just remember watching it and thinking it was incredibly boring. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more to do with um, drug smuggling and um, salvaging uh, morphine ampules from a wrecked World War Two ship. Mm. Don't, all, I, all I remember is the bit with the moray eel, and even then the I couldn't on, tell you what it did. That is the only bit that anyone remembers. Yeah, um, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's okay. Um, yeah, it's got Robert Shaw in it. He's quite good. He plays someone who's nice and survives to the end of the movie. Hmm. Uh, the sculpture is unveiled by the mayor. Yes, of wherever they are. Um, as as we said, played by Melvin Van Peebles. Oh, that's yeah, that's yes, that's him, isn't it? Whilst um, there's a banana boat ride in the uh, off the shore that Thea wants to go on. And yes, and Ellen has got over her fear of the water enough that she doesn't. So that she's un- she's uncomfortable, but she's learnt that visibly freaking out whenever anyone talks about going anywhere near the water just makes other people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, by this point, the revenge is full on, isn't it? Mm. Um, because it, uh, the as people are riding on it, suddenly the jaw, the the, sh- the jaws, the shark rears up out of the water in slow motion, and goes, does and, it re- and, I bites mean, in, and bites into the banana, clearly thinking that it's a real banana. Well, yes, yeah. Um, does it rear up in slow motion, or is it just? Very, very slow. I mean, potato, potato, I guess. But Yeah. Uh, and then it, it gets some poor unfortunate on the end, doesn't it? Yeah. It's. I think this is maybe the best sequence in the film. There's, there's because one... there's, all the, there's, all the, cause there's hundreds of people on the land mm. and they're all freaking out, but they can't do anything. So they just yeah. have to watch in horror as 
as um, the shark tries to attack the other people on the boat. As as as, as the banana boat is you know deflating and people are just holding yes. on, being dragged behind this other boat. It's a yeah. pretty tense sequence. I think it works it's, pretty well. There's there's one nice. Uh, th- this is perhaps the only bit where the shark stuff works well. There's one quite nice gory little shot where. In the background, I think, as the banana boat is accelerating away, they've obviously got a rig with the actress that's been attached and she's sitting in the shark's mouth and she's flailing her limbs, which obviously goes back to my thing about people take a long time to die of shark attacks in this film. And it's only a little throwaway shot, but it, it works it, it works well. Yeah, nice, nice shark attack sequence, finally, uh, at minute 65 or whatever we're yeah. on. We're, we're only 20 minutes from the end of the movie. Mm. Um, Ellen goes berserk and apparently steals a yacht? Yes. Um, Neptune's fool. Yeah. And now, now that her family is being directly threatened, um, she's fighting back. Although, ironically, this is also the point where, effectively... Everyone has to believe. Yeah, she could have just had a family conference, and everyone would have gone, "My God, Ellen, you're you're right. This shark is targeting us because it's there's there's eyewitnesses now." Um, but uh, no, she goes off by herself. Yes, yeah, she steals the boat. The, the, she steals the research boat, and she's out for 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 more revenge, revenge on revenge. Um, and Michael and Jake try to go after her. They meet a hoagie who's out fishing and he takes them to his plane so that they can try and track her down mm. um, Ellen thinks says outright that she thinks that the shark wants to kill her whole family and followed them there and uh, the shark actually rears up to try and bite the plane as it flies past oh d- yes god yeah it does doesn't it now, uh, it's worth noting that sharks don't rear up out of the water. I think by this point, the, given what the stuff the sharks pulled off this far, I was half expecting at one point the, um, the, the all to be on a bus and the shark would be behind them in a hat and coat. Uh, <laughs> uh, or the driver turns around and the driver's the shark. <laughs> it's the shark. Yeah, everyone's a shark, yes. Um, room, yeah. room for one more. Ung, ung, ung. <laughs> in my mouth. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah. The, astonishingly enough, the film gets increasingly silly from this point, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, we we've run out of you know sensible human relationship drama. Yeah. That the, it is now a silly shark attack movie. Mm. But how serious and believable and realistic do you want a shark attack movie to be? I don't, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the thing is, you want to. Spielberg got big play out of not showing the shark, but that's only a trick you can really pull off once. Um, I mean, even having mentioned aliens once, you know, obviously James Cameron gets a lot of play out of using the motion detector, but even then, he makes sure that. You know, he's got something else in the bank, which is the Queen alien that you've noticed. So you get you you get a good eyeful of the Queen at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, that that's the trouble, isn't it? A real, what would a realistic 
a realistic shark attack at this point would be them out in the boat while the shark swims round and round the boat and they stand there and go, wow, glad it can't get up here to get at us. Yeah. So... I mean, looked, at, looked at seriously, shark attacks are extremely rare. Mm. On, on Shark attacks on people. Yes. Um, and even Peter Benchley has said that in one way he regrets writing yeah. Jaws because of the damage it's done to uh, great white populations. As a kid, it left me with the impression that sharks did nothing except lurk in the shallows waiting to bite off a leg. That was my, you know, and all the kind of cuddly shark that, um, there was a, I think it was the Buster had a, had a comic strip called Gums, where the gimmick was the shark had false teeth, and at the end of every adventure it had lost its false teeth. Um, but balanced against that you had, um... Hookjaw. Hookjaw, yes. In action, which was, it was a comic strip in which the shark was the main character, mm. and and in each strip it would uh, attack and kill someone else. Yeah, and the other thing, uh, obviously in the in the olden days, colour was expensive. So colour was reserved for the front cover, the back cover, and the centre pages. And Hookjaw always got the centre pages because that blood had to be red. Nice. Yeah, oh, it was, it's funny actually. Hookjaw has just been resurrected in 2000 AD, but obviously being a bit more of a science fictiony comic i'm not entirely sure where Hookjaw's going at this point it seems to be some more kind of vaguely weird mythical figure um but, is, uh, is there a witch doctor sadly not um but although it's set around cornwall so they have got um kind of local wiccans and people like that involved so it's the same principle basically i do like the idea of a cross between uh jaws and the wicker man <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. In fact, that, mean, would have, it... that would have been a, a fantastic sequel where Lord Summer Isle and uh, Sergeant Howie have to team up to defeat a shark. Mm. Yes, they can't get off the island because a shark's patrolling the waters. Mm. I mean, if you can have sharks in um, New England in winter, then you can have them in Scotland any time of year. Absolutely. And, the, and of course, the problem that Lord Summer Isle's got, the only thing he knows is setting things on fire, and that won't work with a shark. No, because of the water. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 his one weakness. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Hoagie manages to land the plane on the water. It's not a it's not a seaplane, incidentally. No, and it have, seems to be made done, that clear so far. It seems to be done for real as well. I don't think it's a model shot, is it? No. So, fair play to the pilot. That seems like quite a nice piece of flying. I think with a with a smaller plane like that, it's easier than for a passenger jet mm. as Captain Sullenberger can tell you <laughs> Yes, yeah. but um, the others get out of the plane as the uh, shark is attracted by all the the churned up water and <laughs> as who gets out he starts cracking wise oh, oh passengers all the same complain, complain, complain and suddenly the shark rears up out of the water right in front of him <laughs> and he delivers the film's best line Oh shit! <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's um, it, it, yeah. Well, it seems it's. Uh, I think that would be my reaction, to be honest. And he apparently dies. Yeah. Well, the shark. I, I think the the other thing we should stress at this point: this shark does a lot of property damage. Um, oh yeah. It sinks the police boat at the start. It takes a. It wrecks the miniature submarine. 
takes a lump out of the Neptune's folly. It sinks uh, Hoagie's plane. Um, and this shark's a vandal. Yeah. It punches um, the banana boat and makes all the kids cry. Yeah. Um, but um, Michael and Jake make it onto the, uh, onto the Neptune's folly. And just as the plane disappears under the water, suddenly Hoagie climbs up the other side of the boat. Yes. And they ask, oh, how did you do that? And he says, oh, wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just, it, 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 let's just move on, because <laughs> I, think, I think everybody's checked out at this point, haven't they? Well, it reminds me of the joke about how um, Jonah escaped from the whale's stomach. Just that uh, he ran down to the other end until he was all pooped out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the yacht's already damaged, so Ellen and um, Michael start bailing out the water, and mm. uh, Hoagie tries to pump it out. And Jake sets up a radio trap, which is connecting um, a camera flash to the receiver, so that every time they set the flash off. There'll be a like a electric shock or a radio burst or something. Yeah. Well, they the, the screenwriters suddenly got interested in science because as the plane is sinking, Jake has some line about the shark will be attracted to the electromagnetics in the plane. And, yes. Um, it's the writer going. It's the writer desperately seeding. Um, his resolution in advance, because presumably Sid Scheinberg or somebody has looked at it and gone, voodoo? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we just made, I think it was Universal. What, did, did Universal make a Weekend at Bernie's? No, that was an independent production. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, just the idea of, of Sid Scheinberg sitting there going, no, we've just done this and it bombed last time. So no, no more voodoo. Um, well, we, the first weekend at Bernie's came out in 1989. Oh, and, was it after? And that, okay. and that film is is nothing if not brutally realistic. Mm. Weekend at Bernie's two is the one that introduces the the yes. voodoo resurrection element, um, and that came out several years later. Yeah. No, it's um, it, it's just yes. So, so there's some complicated. They do something clever with science. Yeah, it's fine. I, but, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm past the point where yeah, it's it's superficially plausible. Yeah, and and sort of passes the, um, the the bar of scientific plausibility in this shark attack film. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure marine biologists were walking out in disgust at this point. But as far as I'm concerned, it's fine. It's like it's the end of Star Trek or something when they do something clever with neutrinos, and you go, ah, I recognise some of those words. Mm. Jake climbs the bow of the the boat to. Um, are they, oh, they have to put something. Oh, they have, yeah, they have to put something inside the the shark's mouth so that they can set yes. it off remotely. But yes. um, unfortunately, as as he's putting it in, he falls and in slow motion falls into the shark's mouth as well. Yes, and he's very clearly, very clearly eaten. Yes, it's fine. He's, he's definitely dead until he is fine yeah. again. Once the curse is lifted and he comes back to life along with all those other dead people apart from Sean. Yeah. That would have been good, actually. If the, oh, if, that would if have the, been amazing. Yeah. 
if Sean if, come, if Sean at the end walks out of the sea and says, oh, hey, every, hey, hey, yeah. hey, Mike, what am I doing in the Bahamas? Every every person that the shark has killed just suddenly bobs up to the surface and they're all fine, like the end of Fury from the Deep or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Maybe I mean, that this would... Maybe that was in earlier versions of the script. That would have been great because Ellen Ellen confronts and overcomes her fear, and her reward for doing it is her son's alive again. Yeah, yeah, and the poor lady from the banana boat and all the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because by this point, yes, realism has also, along with the marine biologists, realism has checked out. So yeah, why not? Let's go for magical realism. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want a Jaws film as written by Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Yes, uh, I, I was thinking of the shape of water, but yeah. I mean, if we can have a, like a, a season of Star Trek, show run by Michael Chabon, and we all know how well that turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, Ellen manages. Ellen, Ellen actually then flashes back to scenes in the first one that she wasn't in. Yes. Well, I'm sure that um, Brody told her about them. Because he came up with that cool smile, you son of a bitch line. I'd, I'd definitely, when I was repeating the story, I'd definitely take take care to mention that line because I'd be quite proud of thinking of it under the circumstances. Because I would be like Michael Caine. I would be just going, oh, bloody hell, Christ, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd probably leave out some of the more obvious whimpering and just give myself a really cool dry line. Mm. But um, they, they set off the, the flash trap and it makes the shark... Rear up out of the sea, which sharks can't do, and roar, which sharks also can't do because they're fish and don't have any vocal cords. Yeah. Um, and they close in on, they, you know, closing in on it at full speed, and as it rears up out of the sea, they stab it straight in the chest, uh, if fish have chests. Yeah. And um, in some of the worst and most badly edited model footage I have ever seen, a little matchstick ship. <laughs> Spears a thing that might be shark shaped, mm. um, and then the shark immediately explodes. Yes, I, I, which would fine. make sense if it was a curse shark. Yeah, a Dracula. It's been staked through the heart. If it this, was a Dra- this, if it was a Dracula shark, Sharkula, shark. In fact, this was the, now there's a franchise, Sharkula. <laughs> And you know what? You could cast Peter Cushing in that, and he would play it like it was Shakespeare. Yeah, it would be wonderful. We could put. Yeah, we could. Th- you could think of the people you get it, and then you do the black black exploitation version. <laughs> but I can't work out what the title would be. Um, Shark Killer goes to the Bronx. Yeah, it would have to be that, wouldn't it? Yes. Pimp Shark Killer. Yeah. No, it's I. I uh, at this point, everybody is just reaching for the finish line. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, but, we're nearly there. Yeah, no, exactly. But that's the, but yeah, no, it's it's Robert. And I wonder as well if this is all part of the the the, the thing that that gives it this worst film ever reputation, because. Obviously, you come out of the film and you remember the bits that you've sat through most recently. If this film had had a brilliant ending, people might have remembered it differently. But the fact that it's just so shoddy. Well, the original release of the film has a slightly different ending in that the shark doesn't explode. Mm. Uh, It just bleeds out and dies and 
starts to take the ship down with them. Yeah. And also, Jake is definitely dead, because yes. in the international uh, release, and the, the one that's on home video now, the, the shark, as I said, explodes, and Jake bobs up to the surface, unconscious but alive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, do we know? that There's no particular reason for them... I, I mean, I watched the... I watched the original ending on YouTube, and it's not... It's not that different, unless think, I'm missing something really significant. It, I mean, the shark doesn't explode. Uh. I think I think that's the difference that they wanted it to be more spectacular, and particularly since the shark in the, the original film explodes, as Ellen oh, is of as, as Ellen is flashing back to something that she, she didn't see. Yeah, and it intercuts with those two. So it's it's. A, a bad carbon copy of yeah of of you know the thing that everyone likes yes um also in that shot we briefly see where they've shot it in a water tank because you can see the water lapping against the side i was going to say there's some terrible tank work in these last particularly when they're going for the close ups of people bobbing around in the water there's yeah, some terrible tank work and reaction shots that don't match each other properly yeah and then we abruptly cut and they're back at the airport yeah, well. and um, they're you know they're going to come back to Amity in the summertime, and um, Jake has a, a line dubbed in. Oh, it's a line about Jake. Oh, yeah, he wants to be here, but he's in the hospital, rather than oh, he wants yes. rather than he wants to be here, but he's dead. Yes, he's in a shark's tummy. Yeah, um, um, and hmm. Hoagie starts spinning a new yarn about one of his various antics as he's has all the way through the film and the the plane. Takes off and flies off into the sunset, and then the film ends. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, a pretty enjoyable film. It's got some odd moments that mm. are, I think, are the result of it, frankly, being rushed. That the the voodoo shark idea is silly, but if you think it through, it could have worked in a way that was emotionally satisfying. It, mm. it, I don't think they could have got away from it looking silly, but it, mean, but it, I, but it, but like, like the idea we had of you know if the shark is defeated and the curse is lifted, everyone comes back to life. I think that emotionally would have been really satisfying. You fight it, through your trauma and you're rewarded with with this. Hmm. If you're going for magic, then yeah, I mean all bets all, all bets are off anyway, but. I mean, there would have been, there presumably would have been a way to play the voodoo angle more psychologically. That you know, potentially, you you have the argument that the shark attack is a coincidence, but because everyone is aware of, you know, you you get the, what's the word I'm looking for? Where people end up, not psychosomatic, but you know, people kind of believe in stuff because there's self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and you you could have written a film along those lines where, yeah, the local voodoo doctor has, has cursed them and it's written off as a joke and then, oh shit, he's, died, he's been attacked by a shark and died and then everyone starts to go, is this a, is this a curse? Um, yeah. You could have done it, but it, it's more time, isn't it? This is one of the, one of the occasions when a film's clearly been heard by the production schedule it's just too quick yeah it was it was just galloped into cinemas mm. at such a ridiculous pace 
Um, and the result has just been damaging for the entire production yeah. in that sense. The the politics of it and the, the studio demands and the comparisons to the original film are the, the problems yeah. that it has. Those are the things that killed it. Were it not for that issue, were it not for people holding it up against the original film and saying, well, it's not as good as this all-time classic. Mm. Well, no, of course it isn't. And no, no one could reasonably expect it to be. Um, but it's a shark attack movie. Yeah. Exactly how good do you need it to be? Um, Universal wound up having you know, several major hits in 1987. Uh, the Secret of My Success, Dragnet, um, Batteries Not Included, The Lost Boys. Um, Jaws the it's Revenge it, was not among them. But It's um, interesting... Sorry, uh, sorry to derail. It's interesting that this, this, of course, was around the time that old franchises were being resurrected as spoofs. Like, as you say, with Dragnet, you, you were starting to see sort of the films coming back as comedies. <sighs> what was the film? Was it Jaws 2 or Jaws 3 that was originally going to start out as a spoof by the writers of Cracked? Because there was definitely one film where the subtitle was going to be like Jaws 3 people nil or so and it was going to be a kind of it was going to it, be a sort of airplane style spoof it wasn't by the writers of cracked it was by okay. the writers of national lampoon specifically Lampo- john yeah. hughes that was it and the opening sequence was going to be peter benchley attacked and eaten by a shark in his swimming pool <laughs> but maybe 1987 was the time for that film because Steve, you know as you steven say, spielberg just... vetoed it Oh, okay, fair enough. We never did have much of a sense of humour, did we? Uh, what, the director of 1941? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. How could I say such a thing? The, who's, the, the funniest joke in any of his films was improvised on set because Harrison Ford had diarrhoea. Mm. It's, the, it's the bit where he shoots the, the, yes, yeah, the, the, yeah. the, the scimitar-wielding knife man in uh, Red is the Lost Ark, which is, and... ob- which is obviously amazing. But in the script, it was this huge fight. And yes. no, let's just shoot him. It's but so then, much better. But then, isn't it called back with diminishing returns in each subsequent Indiana Jones film? Or is it just called back once? I think it's just once in Temple of Doom, where he tries yeah. to do it again and realises he doesn't have his gun anymore. Yeah. And actually, to be fair, that guy, I, I laughed at the time. So fine. You win this round, Spielberg. So it's it's fine. Yeah. And... When you're when you're reaching the fourth instalment in a series, I think it's fine. Is you know that's sufficient. No one is expecting say. this to be Star Trek Four. No, I mean what else, what do you got? Psycho got up to four instalments, didn't it? Yeah, but Psycho Four is a TV movie. Yeah, and even Psycho Four is pretty decent in its own right because it's a, it's a partial flashback prequel. Hmm. Um, Star Trek Four was revitalised by letting Leonard Nimoy write much of it himself yeah. or, or have a huge amount of um, creative input. With Jaws, there's only so much you can do. So yeah. to do something that's a bit different, to you know, look into the character drama more, change the location, change this, change that, have a female lead, it's trying to do something different. Yeah. Even if you know throwing in a voodoo shock, it's not just being like Jaws 2, the same as before. It's trying to do something fresh. And even though it really struggles, I think it should get credit for at least trying.
Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, with almost 90 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, Merry Christmas, and oh shit! listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.